Well, obviously we'll be in, in 3 John this morning, as many of you know. Um, so really, this is something we've, I've kicked around a lot of different ways and, and um, trying to approach this in a way that um, really can be a benefit to um, all of us, of course, but um, specifically helping us in this, this area of trying to take um, deep biblical truth and a great biblical understanding and trying to put it in a extremely practical manner. And that's really the intentions of how these will go. Um, you'll just have to forgive me if I think at the outset of my tendency to want to go very deep into every word and every phrase. And I'm not intending to do that with this. But again, everybody in this room has been here long enough to know what my tendencies are to go that direction. So um, this is meant to be fully interactive, so it's not going to be a lecture, it's not going to be a sermon. Um, I'm, I'm intending this to be, um, even if we need to stop and ask a question or make a comment or application, um, we can do that um, right away. So let's go ahead and pray and then we'll start and um, we'll get right into this this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we just thank you, Father, for uh, just the privilege of gathering with our church family and Lord, we thank you for uh, each and every one, and that, Lord, that you have uh, you've brought this congregation together. Uh, Lord, and we want to honor you and glorify you with everything we do. And, Lord, even as we begin this time of study, uh, Lord, we, uh, we, we are seekers of the truth today. Lord, we, uh, we don't want to read into things. We don't want to make improper applications, but we truly uh, want to see the glory that's found in this passage and in these texts. Father, we just pray that the Spirit would guide us this morning and help us. Lord, I pray that it would strengthen and edify our families and uh, us as individuals, that uh, we would walk uh, with, have a greater desire to walk in the truth of your word. Uh, Lord, we just uh, give all this over to you this morning. We do pray for our services tomorrow and uh, pray that you would just bless those in a mighty way. And uh, Father, we do uh, think about uh, this, this day 20 years ago, and Lord, we uh, it's, it's almost unfathomable to believe it's been that long, but Lord, we know each and every uh, year that passes, uh, it's again a reminder of, of, uh, of what has happened, and Lord, we continue to pray for the, every family that was affected. We pray for, uh, Lord, that you would just continue to give them peace, um, a peace that uh, must go beyond even their own understanding. Uh, Lord, we just uh, thank you and praise you for this morning, and it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so... Third John, of course, makes up the trilogy of first, second, and third John, um, and it's a it's obviously a very short epistle. So you're talking 14 verses that's packed with um, a lot of truth, but it's also one of those books uh, that is extremely practical. Um, the the primary emphasis um, that's in here is, of course, sound doctrine. Um, but there's also a deep emphasis on principles of sound doctrine and theology being put into practice. And so when we began thinking about this study and thinking about this series, uh, really there's an example given to us uh, by a man named Gaius, who is really the beginning or the subject, the, the, the primary uh, intended audience to receive uh, what's being said here. But it also entails a comparing and a contrasting of different characters. So there really are uh, three main characters, not including the author John, 
you have Gaius and Demetrius and Diotrephes. Three of these characters, and they are all three contrasting in their character traits, um, in how they're known. But I think even deeper than that, it's not just their character traits, but we should be really emphasizing their, their spiritual condition. Um, spiritual condition obviously has a lot to do with how we act. So if my spiritual condition is incorrect, then my actions are not going to match. If my spiritual condition is one of a non-believer, um, really nobody in this room should be shocked at how a non-believer acts. So, I mean, I know the day and age we live today, we're almost amazed when we say, how can somebody be thinking something so wicked and doing something so wrong and seeking after those things, right? That's, I don't think any of us would disagree with that. But the interesting thing about this particular letter, the way it starts, and you, you can see there in that initial greeting, he says, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. So what we know that this epistle is about is the truth. And really there's three main, there's more than three, but there's three main expressions or principles or ideas given. There is the walking in the truth. There is being a fellow helper to the truth. And there is also follow not that which is evil. So those are the three main expressions. So this morning, we're really introducing this by thinking about uh, walking in the truth. Now, um, because there are these sound principles and these sound doctrines and wanting to understand um, how does it, how should it change us, um, obviously it's, it's meant to be a reforming of our character. Um, it's not to say that we're all sitting here today all guilty of not being this, or the point is not for us to get to the end of the study and say, okay, I'm Diotrephes, or I'm Demetrius, or I'm Gaius, or I'm the Apostle John, right? <laughs> That's not what the intent is. Now, through the Spirit's leading, uh, we might see characteristics of ourselves in these characters, but we don't see those characteristics as something that we say, okay, this, this is who I am. Obviously, one of these characters is the exact opposite of what we want to be, and that's the man by the name of Diotrephes. Now, this man is completely opposite of what should match Christian character. So when you think about just quickly um, what's happening here, um, because there is a commending of Gaius, there's a commending of his steadfastness, there's a commending of his faithfulness, but there's also this commendation of hospitality, um, especially with regard to other ministers of Jesus Christ. Hospitality is one of those often overlooked, maybe labeled as maybe not as important things, but yet there's an emphasis on the hospitality to other believers and especially to other preachers. So John commends him for these big theological truths, faithfulness, his doctrine, but he also commends him for his hospitality and his reverence towards the things of God. And so John is going to warn Gaius about don't side with Diotrephes in these matters because Diotrephes is on the opposite side of what this should be. But he's also, and instead he's going to say, but now Demetrius is one you should side with because this man has excellent character. So there really is a lot going on here. Um, 
So let's look at, at the first four verses. And then let me, just, let me just present a question and we'll start there. So the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So a couple of questions. Um, who, who are the beloved that John is writing to in verse 2? Because it's a very, it's, he's, who, he's, he uses the word beloved, and who would be the beloved um, in the New Testament, but who would be the beloved even in our world today? When we use that kind of a statement, who are we referring to? Who's beloved? Is it just, is Gaius just the only one who would have that title of being beloved? Or would it include someone else? All the elect, right. So all of those who, all of those who are in Christ or will be recognized being in Christ. Okay, so he's not writing to the world in general and saying, beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper. Now we can't take this as meaning, oh, well, we don't want, we don't want anything good for the non-beloved, right? That's not what is being said here, but this is being very intentional about who this is addressed to. Um, so, he refers to, John refers to Gaius as well-beloved, who I love in the truth. Now, how do, how do we love people in the truth, or what does that even mean? What's it mean to love somebody in the truth? What are we, what are we loving, or what is it that is, because this is very, obviously a very important expression here, because he says, I, I love him in the truth. Whom I love in the truth. Okay, well, what's the truth? Lord, that you should hold a special place for believers. Okay. Yeah. Instead of, because I think a lot of things that people mistakenly attribute to. Everybody in the world in general is actually, to me, mm -hmm. attributed to other believers. Not Correct. Exactly. Yeah. And that ties back exactly what was said earlier, that uh, the elect, the beloved, those, those who are uh, in the faith. Now, again, this does not mean we're not supposed to have love for people, but this is, this is in fact telling us that the love in the truth is to love in the faith. It's to love in uh, what is of God. It's, it's to love in the people who are God's people. Um, it's amazing to me that we have to be reminded throughout Scripture to love one another. You know, we, we think that when we are converted that we're automatically going to have this propensity to love each other and it's just going to come automatic. And so it doesn't just happen automatically. Um, you know, on a very personal note, and this is why I love doing these kind of studies with our church family. Uh, you folks that are here, you've been here long enough to see some of this start to happen. You've started to see people start to love one another um, and love in the truth. And loving in the truth doesn't mean that we're loving because they meet 
are characteristic of what love should be. We love them because they are fellow helpers to the truth, right? So <laughs> we're not going to love everybody because our personalities mesh or we're going to always get along, but we love because we love them in the truth. And so it's interesting that the very first request here seems to be for earthly prosperity, but we need to dig deeper here. He says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. And this is a fascinating use of expression that, that he uses here, because here he's using this example that John, as he writes to, to Gaius, he says, Above everything else, I hope that you prosper in life as well as you do, as well as your soul prospers. Now, one of the difficulties when you study scripture is that this name Gaius appears uh, in the New Testament at least four times. Um, it was a common name um, during the Roman during the Roman Empire. It was Gaius would have been a com, as common name of, as John Smith is today. So this was not a rare name. This was not something to say. Oh, there's only that's got to be this one individual that we're talking about. Um, but the Gaius here, just for uh, context sake. Um, is not uh, a, a brother in Christ that Paul baptized in 1 Corinthians 1.14. There's a man named Gaius who's mentioned in Corinthians that this is not that same man. Um, but this is a man, Gaius is a man who was converted under the ministry of John. So John's ministry had a direct influence or was used for the conversion of this man's soul. So I want you to see the beauty of this. This is, this is John who, who obviously walked with Gaius. He ministered to Gaius. He watched as he was converted, and now he's watching him walk in the truth. Now, there's not much greater joy than that, than to watch someone converted and then to watch them walk in the truth, right? I mean, isn't that, isn't that the beauty of it? It's, you know, we've all seen conversions that happen quickly, and maybe there's not a follow-up of walking in the truth. But imagine this. Imagine somebody who maybe was under a part of the ministry God gave to you, who now you get to watch them grow. You get to watch them walk in truth. But with that, you, be, you become invested in their life, right? You become so invested that you begin to take it personal uh, when somebody who you had at least a part in begins to walk contrary to truth. Right? Would we all agree that that's one of the most difficult things we watch is watching somebody who was in the faith who's now walking contrary? He's commending Gaius for his walk, his walk in the truth. And he says, I want you to continue to prosper. I hope you prosper in life as much as you're prospering soul. So now in 2 John, which obviously is just a page back, there is... There was also the same kind of language that John used in that. It says in verse 1, he said, The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. So John, when he wrote to this particular audience, is speaking the same thing, this walking in truth, and for the truth's sake, whom I love in the truth. So who are we to love in the truth? If we take the Bible as it says, 
Who are we to love in the truth? Just those that are here at SBBC, or is it all the elect? Is it all believers? Which one is it? Is it just, is it just our, little, our little community here? No, it should be all that are walking in truth. So we're not the only right community. We're, this, is, this is the divinely appointed community that God's led us to, but our community is not the only right one. And so we're, we should love other brothers and sisters that are in the truth, that are walking in truth. I should rejoice when I see somebody else walking in truth, even though they don't walk in our community, right? So I shouldn't be so possessive of my community that I say, Oh, well, you're a part of that community over there. Um, our community is the only right one. No, I should rejoice because I should love the elect in the truth. And I should love them. That's practical, right? That's love one another. When Jesus told the disciples to love one another, he wasn't saying, just love the, tw- love the 12 of you. Keep this to yourself. As a matter of fact, he had to, he had to correct one of the disciples when the disciples said, well, they're, they're not following us. And he said, it doesn't matter, and I'm paraphrasing, it doesn't matter if they're not following us, they're speaking the truth. So very practical spe- practically speaking here, that's what we have happening here. So notice that this, the second John connects the words truth and love. Th- these are what's referred to in scripture as, we'll call them twin sisters. They can't go separately. I can't love without truth. And I can't have the truth unless love is demonstrated as a result of it. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, they're connected. And they can't be, I can't divide them. So I can't say, I have the truth over here, but I don't love you. Or I can't say truly that I love you in the truth if I don't know the truth or I don't have the truth. If I don't possess that which is truthful, then I can't love you properly. Remember, nine times out of ten, maybe nine and a half times out of ten, when Scripture refers to love, it's not, dealing with, it's not dealing with feeling love. It's dealing with love that's related directly to the truth. So because I know the truth, I love. And that's the concept that's happening here. So walking in the truth, uh, really. So John is, is calling himself into this, saying, I love you in the truth. Um, he's identifying Gaius as being beloved of the Lord. He's identifying Gaius as being loved by himself. But he's also identifying Gaius as being loved by other brethren. So people who knew Gaius, they loved him. They loved him not because he was lovable, but they loved him because he was a person of great faith. He was a person of integrity. And he was a person who was very generous and very liberal, especially in his hospitality. Now, hospitality is is a misused word. We often think it just means having somebody into our home or providing a meal, which these are all great things. It's all great things that our church can do. But hospitality is also our attitude towards another believer. Someone else comes in and Um, How is our attitude towards them? Do we support them because they're in the truth or are we envious of them because they have something that we don't have? Now, why, why could that be dangerous? Why could it be dangerous to envy somebody else who is in the truth? What can happen to us? Well, first of all, does it happen? 
Do we ever envy another believer because of something that they have or something that they do? Do we ever envy another church because another church has something that we don't have or they... It, it, can, it can cause that divisiveness that brings us to the place where we say, okay, you know, because we're not that, then we must be wrong. It, it's amazing to me how God has programmed his work to go out all over this world. There are, there are millions of congregations all over this world, and every one of them is unique. Every one of them is unique, but they all should have those same two characteristics. They should be led by love in the truth. So I can begin, I could, the danger is I can begin to distort the truth. If I start to believe that, wait a minute, we can't love Gaius over there because Gaius doesn't follow us. He's, he's, not, he's not part of our circle. And I wouldn't speak so frankly about this if I hadn't seen this happen. I've seen this happen in denominations within denominations where not just the Baptists, for example, but you start getting the Baptists and you start shrinking them down. And when you take an entire denomination, you start getting little tribes, right? So you, so you start asking people, what tribe are you with? You don't actually use the term tribe, but that's what we're saying. And this tribe over here says about this tribe over here, well, we believe this, and since you don't believe that, uh, then there's something wrong. We, we can't love you in the truth, so we're gonna cut off fellowship with you. Imagine what's happening when Believers who all have the truth begin to segregate themselves and say, we can't love you, Gaius, because you're not part of our tribe. Now, the reason that that's important is because Gaius is going to illustrate this because this story has people who have come to visit the church that he was a part of. And it's his response to those who came part of what John is commending how he responded to these traveling, we'll call them traveling evangelists or traveling missionaries. So, so what, does this, what does this prayer of John uh, about Gaius in verse 2 say about Gaius' spiritual health according to what John is praying? Is he saying that Gaius has good spiritual health or his spiritual health is very lacking? It's good. That's, that's the best way to put it. It's good. Because he says, I hope you prosper in life as well as your soul is prospering. Now, the greatest compliment we can ever be given is that somebody says, your soul is prospering. But his soul is prospering, and it's evidenced by his outward action. Okay? I can't look at anybody in this room and just say, your soul is prospering, unless there's evidence on the outside that demonstrates the prosperity of your soul. That's the danger we get in of trying to identify somebody's heart because I can't see it. You can't see it. We talked Wednesday night. I can't see the, I can't see the motive, the whole idea of judging. I cannot see the motive. So John would not commend Gaius for something that he didn't see. Does everybody follow that? He wouldn't commend him and say, well, I, I'm, I, I hope your life is as good as your soul. I think your soul is good. No, he's saying, I know your soul was good because of the way you act. So, verse 3, For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. Here's what's interesting. John didn't witness all this outward characteristic himself. What's, who's he saying he heard this from? Who's John saying he heard about Gaius's 
outward characteristics from? It's that same word. The brethren. Other people were telling John about Gaius. Right? So they, were, they testified to John, and, and you can kind of illustrate it and put it this way. You got people coming to John and saying, you are not going to believe this guy Gaius. And he is a walking testimony of the truth. Now look, if somebody came up to me in public somewhere and said, hey, do you know, and they don't know that I know you. They say, do you know so-and-so? And I say, well, yeah, I know them. And they start testifying and telling me, you know what, that person, they really truly live and act what they believe. Now, do you think that's going to thrill me or really upset me? <laughs> I'm going to be thrilled. That's other people are testifying about you. Sometimes people could say about a minister, a pastor, an elder, however a church is structured, that if, if I talk favorably about you in public, they might say, well, yeah, you're their pastor. You've got to talk nicely about them, which <laughs> you see there's an assumption being made. But these were people who were coming and telling John, I want you to know this man, he testifies of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. So what does it mean to walk in the truth? It is the characteristic outward expression of the soul's spiritual health. So what are these two things that are bringing John joy according to verse number three? What brings him great joy about Gaius' character? There's two things. What brings him joy? I rejoice greatly. When the brethren testify to the truth. That's one. When I rejoice greatly because the brethren are testifying to the truth that's in you. And what's the second one? That walk is in truth. That you walk in the truth. Not your the testimony of the other brethren, it matches. Right? It matches. This isn't John saying, are we talking about the same guy here? Because what I've seen in Gaius is exactly opposite of what you're saying. No, it's, it, it's, it, it's a match. So what he says matches what the brethren are saying. And it brings him great joy. Now, verse 4 is one of those application verses that can we apply it to our personal children but we can also make sure that we apply it to the children correctly here. He says, I have no greater joy. Now, this is John writing to Gaius, remember. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, make one thing clear. John is not Gaius's earthly father. But he calls him my children in a similar manner. Who else talks like this in the New Testament when he refers to another person? And he calls him my son or my child. Paul. And who is he saying that about? Who did Paul say that about? He called him one of the, the prominent example of my son, Timothy. Timothy. So John is saying about Gaius, I have no greater joy than to hear that my, ch my children, plural, it's not just, John Gaius was not the only convert of John's ministry, but he said, there's no greater joy for me to know than that they walk in the truth. Now, of course, when we, when we think about us as, as parents, 
Um, obviously, this is a verse that I think every parent at some point in their life who's in Christ has claimed and say, said, uh, this is what I want for my children. You know, and this is what Christians want for their children above being successful earthly. Right? We shouldn't, we don't, we shouldn't be in this place in our life where we, our child is born unto us and given to us and they say, you know what, I hope this child grows up and becomes a highly powerful, prominent corporate executive. Now he might, she might, but that's not what's going to bring you the greatest joy. What's going to bring you the greatest joy is that your children walk in truth. I don't know a Christian parent who that's not their number one most prayed for after their conversion is that they'll walk in the truth. I, I, if somebody can share a great, well, I'd rather have it. I, I, I don't know of a, a scriptural principle that's greater than that one. So John is connecting just how important this is. That not only do I rejoice greatly that he walks in the truth, but he says, I have no greater joy than that. You know, I'm, I'm finding here recently, and there's very peculiar thing. I'm not going to get real specific today, but just I found this very peculiar thing that started to happen to me recently is that there are some things that I used to find great joy with are not bringing me as much joy anymore. And it actually, when it started to happen, it made me kind of mad. I'm like, why? is this not bringing me as much contentment or much excitement or much looking forward to it? What's happening to me? And you think at first it's negative, but you begin to put in perspective what that thing is. And you realize that thing that was bringing me joy was temporary. But when your children or yourself walk in the truth, He's talking about something that's eternal. There are things that used to bring me great joy 20 years ago that right now I have no desire for them anymore. They, they weren't bad. And even like in this example, the things that I'm not having as great a joy, they're not bad things. They just have lowered in importance. I remember, I remember my own father telling me that years ago, saying, you know, there are things that will... There are things that will, will, will start to change. They won't bring you as much um, contentment as they once did. And of course, as a child, a young man, I'm like, well, this is always going to bring me joy. He was right. <laughs> it doesn't. It, there are things that just don't last. So there are people that mistreat this text and they say, oh, see, this is, this is where the prosperity gospels, people get it. They want you to prosper. I want you to prosper. It's spiritual prosperity. So then verse 5, he said, Beloved, there's that word again, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren. Now here's where it starts to really get us. And to strangers. So now he says, look, Gaius is really, really good at entertaining the brethren. People he knows. But what about strangers? What about that person that walks in the door that we don't know? How do we treat them? Look what it says. Even the strangers bear witness to Gaius' testimony, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. 
John is not speaking in hypotheticals here. He's talking specifically about strangers who came and how Gaius responded to those strangers. He treated them with charity, which is what? It's word for love. He, he treated them as if they were one of the brethren. So we talk a lot about the grace of God. We believe the grace of God. But do you know that we actually should demonstrate by being gracious people? Being gracious is every fiber of our being. So we understand that our soul prosperity influences our well-being temporally, how we are outwardly. We see that the brethren who came and talked about Gaius, they didn't envy the gifts and the commendation of Gaius, but they rejoiced together in the truth. So we all rejoice together. But yet here, this principle now that he brings up is this idea of how do we treat strangers? He commends Gaius for his hospitality and love to the brethren. These were just other brethren who crossed his path. Now, how does that happen in our modern day? How do we cross paths with other believers? Here. Here. This is probably the most obvious one that can happen. Uh, we've, we've talked about this hundreds of times in our house. In the years since we've been here, we have had lots of people come through these doors. I mean, really, for as small as we are, we've had a lot of people come through. Some stayed and some we never saw again. But you know, we're not treating people that come in as potential acquisitions, right? Now we hope that if that's the Lord's will for them, but if, if somebody comes in and says, hey, I'm visiting from Montana, should we still entertain the brethren with the best of hospitality we can give? Or do we back off now because, well, they, they can never be a part of our church, so they're not going to offer anything to us. Now, I would like to say that doesn't happen in churches, and it does. There becomes immediate disconnect. Hey, we ask that typical question. Are you from around here? They say, no, I'm from Montana. Oh, well, good to have you. Now, that's fine, but don't treat them any differently. Treat them as if they're brethren. We love them in the truth, and we're glad that they're here. And we may never cross paths with them ever again. And there's a principle here. Again, like I said, this is intensely practical because even the strangers said about Gaius that he's acting faithfully. So let's put this in our modern day situation. How would we act or do faithfully towards strangers? Whether we cross paths here, or we cross paths in the world, how would it be said about us that we did faithfully? I'm going to assume the quietness is the wheels turning. It's a little bit convicting. (laughs) Convicting? This is a Bible study. This isn't a sermon. (laughs) 
You can't. There's no conviction allowed during Bible study. I think it depends on the situation. Okay. Exactly. You know, so it's situational. Okay. But yep. It doesn't mean it uh, changes so much that you're rude or... Right. You know. Right. And that's a good point. There are different situations. That is absolutely true. And even to add to that, I mean, if you even skip down to the next epistle, it says it's talking about people creeping in unawares. Yeah, and Jude. Yeah. <laughs> and then you talk... I mean, we're talking about... I'm not like poking holes in anything, but we're talking about not judging people. And I, I get that. But there's some sort of judgment there. Mm-hmm. And there's some sort of, someone has to be watching over something. Yep. But, you know, it's almost, it's on the same page for me. Yep. Talking about uh, two strangers and then mm-hmm. yeah. certain men creeping in unawares. So. Yep. I mean, there has to be uh-huh. a line, even if it might be... And First John tells us we should try the spirits, right? We should yeah. test the spirits. So that's what we talked about Wednesday. It doesn't mean that we don't judge. We just got to be careful in how we approach our judgment and, real, and, and think that it's before we make that judgment that we've got to make sure we get that big beam out of our eye, remember? But you're absolutely right, and both of those are right. There are certain situations... Um, I'll be honest with you, there's been, there's been times, and it usually has happened on a Wednesday night, where somebody comes in and visits our church, and that's our lowest attended, so there's not many of us here. And there's times we've had people come through where I've been a little bit leery. I, I, I'm just honest with you, I've been leery about what intent was. And <laughs> some, strange, some strange goings on we've seen. Um, but we tend to still to act faithfully to them in trying to treat them the best that we can. Usually, I, if that happens to me, I usually will have, a, I'll try to have a direct spiritual conversation with that person. It's kind of like we get through the pleasantries and then I start asking them about their background. I start asking about their faith. You know, I start asking about where they go to church. I'm still acting faithfully. I'm still treating them respectfully and I'm, I'm treating them as if they're one of the brethren. I'm still treating them right. Now again, creeping unawares from the book of Jude. And what's scary about that is you have people that can creep in unawares who have been there a while before you realize they got in because they had all the characteristics of, a, of the believer, but they were actually there to destroy. There have been churches that have been destroyed that way. And so you're absolutely right. We can't just say, hey, doesn't matter what you believe, but there does need to be this, how do I treat uh, the brethren. So that there's a there's a whole whole lesson in that. So there's there's these principles of acting faithfully. Um, verse six, we kind of already talked about. He bore witness of thy charity, so they saw it after a godly sort. And then here's the key, verse seven, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. So what's significant here is that in these sections, John is now introducing this concept of fellow helpers to the truth. He's commended Gaius for his hospitality. Uh, he's commended him for his charity or love towards the believer or to brethren. He opened his heart to strangers. Um, 
these 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 men ended up being traveling evangelists or traveling preachers who who they were strangers to Gaius before he never knew them. Okay, that's who was testifying. Now this is a situation where it ended up being other ministers of God who were coming through and Gaius treated them properly. Now, this is important because the response that Gaius has is going to be contrasted with the response that Diotrephes has. Because when we learn about Diotrephes probably next month, is Diotrephes takes the exact opposite approach and he does not treat them well, nor does he treat anybody well, and he becomes the, the focus of what's happening here. So we ought to think about the reality if we do have a fellow helper to the truth, we have a fellow laborer in Christ come through, it is a privilege for us to be able to help them. It's a privilege for us to be able to, to entertain them um, and to do, you know, if they're, out, if they're preaching the gospel, and that's what he says here, that for his namesake, they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. They didn't come just to get your support. They didn't come just to get your money. They came for the sake of Christ. And so that's, that's the significance there. So Gaius demonstrated his love towards them. Verse 8, we therefore ought to receive such. Now, what's the such referring to? Other ministers of Christ. We ought to receive them the same way. How does that mean we receive them? We receive them that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. So even if we have an individual who comes through and is representing another ministry, by us treating them well, we become fellow helpers to the truth of not only them, but their ministry. We had someone here with us Sunday that's exactly in that situation where they were here um, they are part of a Reformed Baptist church in Alaska. And we may or may not ever see them again. But there's a ministry in Alaska now that's been, I've been made aware of that now I'm praying for. I didn't know them before last Sunday. Didn't know they were going to be here. They are here, and now I know about a church ministering in a town of 4,000 people that is basically on an island in Alaska that you cannot get to by car, has to be by boat or by plane. I had no idea it existed. I didn't even know the town in which it's located existed until now. Until then, now I know. So what do we do? We simply acknowledge that and know that by helping them or whatever it is, even by our prayers for them, and by the way, I think the favor is going to be returned that that ministry now is praying for us. So what have we just done? We've become fellow helpers of the truth. We're loving in the truth. You see, that's, what, that's what's happening here. So just kind of finishing this, these eight verses is kind of the verse I want to get through today. Um, what really is it to be a fellow helper to the truth? I mean, that's an example I gave you from last week, but what's another example or examples of how we can be fellow helpers to the truth? Like even in a practical way, like even today. I mean, if nobody comes through that we can help, how, do we, how are we fellow helpers of the truth every day? Preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel, yeah. Yeah. Supporting those who do preach the gospel. Um, I have people who come to me privately from this church who come to me and say, look, if, 
if I get involved in this ministry, um, would you support me in that? <laughs> absolutely. I want to go minister. I want to go preach. I want to go do this. I want to, absolutely. Why? It may not be me going, but if that's their burden to go, I become a fellow helper to that. You know, sometimes we, some of us have, have grown up in environments that said we are, we are to be all things equal. We're all supposed to have the same gifts. We're all supposed to do the same thing. That if I do this, then everybody in the congregation needs to do that. That's not scriptural. It's just not. There, you know, and I, I lived under that oppression for so many years thinking, you know what? I, I can't be like that guy. So you know what starts happening when you have that attitude is you do start to become envious of somebody else who has an ability that you don't have. And it leads to bitterness because you start to say, well, I can't preach. I can't talk. I can't do that. You know, if somebody says, well, we're going to do this. Why aren't you doing it? Are we all supposed to be exactly the same? No, I don't think we are. I don't think anywhere scripturally you can say that. I think what's the beauty of a local church and especially the beauty of a local church, yes, universal church, it's there. But the beauty of the local church is the church is functioning according to its members and it's functioning according to the gifts, the gifting of that church. So that illustration of that church I gave you that we learned about last Sunday, I can guarantee you it's gifted differently than we're gifted, but there's still a love in the truth. And I don't need to know their order of service. I don't need to know everything about what they're doing, but I do know that they're proclaiming Christ in a place that I will probably never visit. I'll probably never see that. But yet, they're fellow helpers to the truth for us, and we're fellow helpers to them. So I think, you know, by putting this together to where we kind of get to this, just these principles is to really come to a place where we understand that love and truth can't be separated, that if we truly are in possession of the truth, we're going to love. And we're going to have love for the brethren, love that is not just based upon, is that person worth loving? And that leads us all the way back to the the whole conversation we have about God's love to us is that God doesn't love us because we were lovable. God doesn't love us because we offered him some great uh, asset that he could use. I heard this said this week, and I'm I'm here at all the time, and I'm, I'm convicted all the time when I say that it's an absolute privilege that God even gives us the opportunity to speak and live the truth. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to say, God doesn't need me, but yet here's the way I can live out the truth of God. So the final question today is, is really the one that'll wrap this up is, and this is just in the first eight verses, we may get a better idea of this when we get to the second half next month, but what does third John teach us about God? We see the practical aspects of how this works out in our life, but what does it teach us about God? We need thinking music or something, don't we? 
God is what? Oh, same um, clock. Clock is, oh, rhythmic clock. clock, yep. Yeah, you can listen to the clock. Yeah, it just, it, it tells you how much time is going by before anybody says anything, doesn't it? Cares for his church. Yeah, okay. So God cares for his church. Absolutely. How does God love his people? He loves them in the what? He loves them in the truth. So people that are screaming how we only want to talk about God's love, and so we don't put an emphasis on the truth, we just talk about God's love. Can they truly understand God's love if they have no desire for the truth? No, you can't. So we can't just simply say, hey, as long as you name God in your organizational structure, God loves you that way. No, God loves in the truth. And that's the blessing of salvation. We were outside of the truth. And yet, by his mercy, he brought us into the truth. You and I did not possess truth until he gave the truth to us. So we walk out of here in a few minutes and we say, we could take this for granted and say, you know, that was a good Bible study. Yeah, it, hopefully it was. Hopefully, I hope this is the most beneficial thing you have all day. But if we leave here without thinking about the realities of why do I understand anything we talked about today is because God in his love loved me enough to send his son to pay the sin debt that I owed, converted my soul so that I can say my soul prospers in the Lord. And I walk out of here with something that the world cannot claim ownership to. The odds are pretty good that if you go out in the world at some point today, you're going to run into more people who have no idea what the truth is. They don't possess it. You know, that's why we're all so alarmed when we see things happen in our world. So like, how can the world be as wicked as it is? That's what wickedness without the truth, how it will act. Nothing surprises me. Now, 20 years ago today, I was shocked at the depravity of man. 20 years ago, I didn't fully understand God's, I didn't fully understand depravity either. But I'm shocked. Why? Because you think, how can man act so wickedly? Yet, apart from the grace of God, we, would, we could act in the same manner. Even though it seems above us or well below us. We couldn't possibly do that. But I think part of what this study, I hope, will help us is to see, is to bring us to the place of saying, this is just, if it brings us conviction, great. If it brings us edification, I think it should do both. I think that's the wonderful thing about Scripture. It edifies and it convicts. And sometimes the edification is found in the conviction. <laughs> we think, oh, I don't want conviction. Well, actually, conviction can be edification because it's challenging us to think how we respond and how we act. Okay? All right. Anything else this morning? Um, or any comments? We'll take some time for that now. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, sorry, not, not to diminish Christ's work on the cross, but besides Christ's work on the cross, mm -hmm. um, correct me if I'm wrong, but everybody likes to point out uh, not forsaking your right to assemble as a kind of like a proof text of attending church, but mm -hmm. to me, uh, John's epistles 
surpass that for I would agree for attendance to church. I would right? wholeheartedly if, agree. If you are, and I'm kind of wrestling this with this now because of this job mm-hmm. and I yeah. can't make as much. But I mean, if you are truly of Christ, you should love one another mm-hmm. and let you know. Right, love is an action. For yeah. God to love the world He gave, so that yeah. should at least mean you should. Absolutely. Right. Am I? I, I would agree. Yeah. Anybody disagree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, and I think you're hitting on something that's so important. And there's one thing to be told. Well, this is what you have to do. You know, in that proof text, not forsaking the someone of yourselves, it's a manner of some is. So instead of showing people the the beauty of it. Right, which I think you just pointed out in these epistles, the beauty of it, it speaks volumes above that one quote-unquote proof text. And the more you know the truth, the more these things become, well, how can I do anything else? (laughs) How can I not, as of the response of my response to God, how can I not want to, or how could I not want that to be a part of my life? And so, you know, I, like I said, I grew up in an environment where it was just proof text, proof text, proof text, bam, bam, bam. This is why this is, you you just have to do this. And then understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. Had no clue what I'm doing. I just, like I said, someone gives you the proof text and you say, well, that's a proof text. So I guess that reforms my whole nature. And it really didn't. What reforms our nature is the word of God. And it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It, it doesn't happen overnight. And, and when, when, we first got to the, when we first got to this church and there was really nothing in place, we didn't know what, we didn't know what I was going to do. We didn't know what we were going to do. So what did we do? We just took the Bible out and we said, let's just start and let's just go. And let's just keep moving and keep pointing people and let people grow. I mean, but I've seen the opposite approach. You just beat people, beat people, beat people. But if they don't understand what, why, you're never going to reform anybody. You're not going to reform a church. You're not going to reform people's nature. You're not going to reform their character. It's a, it, you have to come to a personal understanding about those things yourself. So that's a great point. I'm just glad I wasn't No, I... The only one that... I think, it's, I think it's great. I think there are so many things, and I think you're bringing up the thing of Jude. I mean, the, the creeping out. I mean, those are, that's how the Bible works all together. It's not a, you know, the Christian faith is not a series of proof texts of trying to find the, let me find the reason why you must do this. It's, 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 it's understanding the truth and it's understanding the love of God for you is what's leading my actions to be different. I just had a very conversation with somebody about um, why, you know, why is it important to be in God's word and why is it important to be in the church? And yeah. um, but it's, it's, it's not about, you know, checkbox. It's not about, yeah. um, it's not about that at all because that actually pushes us away. 
Yeah, you know, it certainly that, can. That doesn't transform our life, and there's nowhere where you're going to see in the Bible that um, if, if if you're not in a church every time the doors are open, I mean, you're not going to find it. Yeah. Um, and and that will actually that's destructive for yep. you as a believer. But but it, but it is about that heart transformation and knowing that um, you know that walking in truth. You know, like Skylar said, and. Yep. Knowing that, that, that you need that, you need God's word, you need the preaching of God's word as often as it's being given, that is what will change your life. Yeah. And, um, but for somebody just to tell you that, it's yeah. going to create a rebellion in your spirit and it is not going to help you in any way. Yeah. And I think it's true, it's definitely not going to help you in your evangelism personally. No where you try to talk to somebody as to the reasons why they should be in church or why they you're talking at a level that they're not even going to fully comprehend why there's even any value to that. You know, if, if someone is an unbeliever and you say, why do I need to be in church? And you say, because the Bible says so. Your argument is going to fall flat on its face. I mean, you could talk a direct truth to somebody who you know, it, that's what the Bible says, but their recognition of the truth is what's lacking. And again, ask yourself the question, why do I recognize this is the truth? Did I intellectually ascend to it? Or is this a supernatural work of the Spirit? It's the latter. It's a supernatural work of the Spirit. Supernatural work of the Spirit that we would even have a desire for these things. Anything else? Yeah, Chase. I have a question about yeah. geometries, and you'll have to tell me if this is getting ahead of things. No, that's all right. That's um, all right. I'm... This is kind of a question maybe that we'll discuss later, but what was, he was in the church, right? So, or did he just come in? No, he was part of, he was part of that same church. He was so part of the same place where Gaius was, yes. So what was his place in the church? Like, was he just, um, I mean, that may not be known. Most, most commentators, because it doesn't say specifically, but based on history of the church, is that he was an officer in the church, which, which means he would have been part of the leadership. So could have been elder, could have been in a role of deacon, it could have been role of a pastor, it could have, he could have had one of those titles. Now, this letter doesn't tell us that, but he had the exact opposite. And what actually, and I'm glad you pointed that out, because verse 10 actually says that neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and he cast them out of the church. So that was... <laughs> So like, why is he in the church then? Why isn't anybody doing anything about this? Good observation. Yes. Yeah, and it's the same question as when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5 about the sin that was going on in the church. Why is nobody doing anything? They creep in. So you don't know what's happening yeah. right away. Now, that's a good point. And what may have happened is this may have been the event that revealed who he really was. Okay. We, the thing we don't know is that we don't know if this was like a pattern of behavior or, but it does say, it does say that he 
he desired, and that's the very, the very next days is that uh, John says, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. So he actually calls Diotrephes. He said, that's, if you, if you want to, that's evil right there. And the only reason he gives is that he himself will not receive the brethren and forbids them that would and cast them out of the church. What's, what, has, what strikes me is it doesn't say that he wouldn't receive the strangers. It's that he wouldn't receive the brethren, which is more frightening. These were other believers, those same believers, I believe, as Hugeus, they said he received them. Diotrephes didn't. <laughs> I was really not going to be Diotrephes, like because the Bible, the Bible <laughs> generations, so people are seeing him. I, you, absolutely, and your name is in mm-hmm. eternity as this man. Yeah, and that goes to the whole study of a character in your in your name, how how your how you will be remembered. He could have repented. He could have, yeah, he could have repented. I don't think we ever have an account of it, but he could have. You know, Nicodemus, who came to see Jesus at night, we know later that he repented because he anointed the body of Jesus. So we know that somewhere between there, but it doesn't say specifically there was a day when Nicodemus repented, but the fact that he was there caring for Christ after his death. I don't know what happened to Diotrephes. But it's a great point. I like what you said. Why isn't anybody doing anything? Absolutely. Absolutely. And to be fair, very complex, and things are not always obvious. They're not always yeah. apparent. Um, yeah. Most of the older adults in this room, I'm not classifying who the older adults are, but most of us know there's been times, it's happened to all of us, where somebody or something did not turn out anything what was their perceived appearance. You know, I've known, like I said, I've been very personal about this. I've watched, I've watched men fall totally out of the ministry who I never thought would fall out of the ministry because to me, they were the picture of faithfulness. They were the picture of what a godly servant supposed to be. Now, maybe they were and they fell into sin, but you realize that, and I think partly what Diotrephes, and I think we will get to that next month, is that I think this is something that he was intentionally doing this to disrupt. So was he a false teacher? Would he be? At that time, he probably would have been, depending on the level. That's the thing scripturally. We don't know a lot about him other than what John writes about in this particular epistle. So what Skyler said about how Jude... Mr. Lewis. I'm sorry. Mr. Lewis said about Jude, they wrote the book right after this. Yes. That's kind of fascinating how those relate. Yep, and it's, it's, it's one of the first things they deal with in the first four verses of the book of Jude. That's interesting. They, they love to have preeminence. I mean, he'd yeah. probably been on TV today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's another thing we'll talk about. He, he wanted the preeminence. He wanted to be the center of everything. Oh, I, that's why I said I've been trying to, like I said, this has started and restarted and I've been trying over and over again how to deal with this. And th- this is so intensely practical, not only just the church life, but uh, just the life of a believer. It's, it's crazy how much this will mirror today's life. Okay, might have anything else?
Okay. I'm just wondering when you, can you, how do you, you have people like that in the church and you start getting an inkling that, oh, something might be off here. Like we're not walking in the same truth. Yeah. Kind of thing. Like, is that, do you just, is that just praying you, you know, trust God will lead through all of that? Or are we accountable to start to kind of prod a little bit? I think it I think again it can depend. I think there are circumstances where there could be an uncertainty, but there are also situations where if it is so for example, let's use the extreme. If we know it's something flat out heretical, like somebody's teaching salvation by works and they are they are spreading that through the church like wildfire. That's something you have to con- you don't pray that out, you confront that. And that that usually means leadership of the church gets involved first and at least has to confront them about it, um, call them into question about it, and explain to them why this is wrong. Um, There are cases that have happened. um, That's one of the reasons why church discipline is there, is that if somebody is, it's not just for, hey, you personally offended me by saying something wrong, that's to start that process, that one individual goes to another person, calls them out, uh, in the truth and in love, what's going on. And the idea is, is that they should, if, they, if it's clearly wrong, they should turn from that and they should repent of that. If they don't, then the witnesses then take somebody else back with me to confront that person again or whoever it is. And if they won't listen then, then it becomes a situation where it's got to be told to the church and the church has to take action against that, which it's not a popular terminology. People it's, it's what they used to refer to as excommunication. I know it's a word that gets just a cap, but that's what it's called. You, you, you separate them from your congregation. Now, the time period that goes through, how long do we do that? Biblically, it doesn't say. Now, Paul seemed to say in, in 1 Corinthians about that sin in the church, that that should have been dealt with immediately as soon as you found out. So there could be something that's not... It's not doctrinal error. It might be preferential error that might be being propagated that we wouldn't handle the same way as we would if somebody was saying, hey, you know, this church teaches salvation by grace and he's there, this church is wrong and we're going to correct it, we're going to change it. We would have to deal with it a lot quick, more quickly. Does that answer the question? But you've got to stand the word there, right? Correct. I mean, just because you're in the majority. Right. I mean, Absolutely. There was a time we thought the Arians were going to win that argument, right? Yes, I mean, and correct. It was a Steve Austin got kicked out of the church. Yes. I, mean, I don't mean to play the fame game, but... No, no. Uh, yeah, I... Yeah. I, I, that's the flip side of that, right? I mean... You yeah. Know. Yeah, there's been, there's been faithful ministers kicked out of churches by the congregation because they were speaking the truth. Yeah, Caleb and Joshua, right? <laughs> yeah, they... they and, and they couldn't give a reason as to why. They just said we want them out because we don't believe in what they're. So there's this constant thing, and it, you know, you've sparked this by asking that question. Why is nobody doing anything? And it is. It's complex. It's very complicated because you know if we truly do love people in the truth, we don't want to. Then try to take in Wednesday's judge not trying the spirits. Is this an intentional thing, or is this somebody who's acting out of um, ignorance? Do they really not know? You know, it's the same way I do with my children. Now, my children are adults now, but I don't, I hope that I don't just automatically assume 
malintent here. We usually, we give them a little bit of leeway to f- try to find out what's actually really going on here instead of just assuming, wow, you were, you're just horrible to the core here. Maybe there was something more going on. So everything's very complex as to how you handle it. And I mean, there have been people who have taken this passage as a, a, an instructive test as to here's how we handle things in the church and so these things don't happen, right? And it, sometimes it comes back to asking a series of questions of people. Um, it's another reason. See, you're opening up a lot of things. Why you got to be very careful who you put into a leadership of a church. Um, the Bible talks about not putting a novice in, somebody who is very elementary in their understanding of the things of God. I mean, one of the great mistakes that's ever been made is a person gets converted and then they say, we want you to be the pastor of the church. Because there should be a life, a proof that that person has been walking in the truth before they're ever put into a position of leadership of a church. Right? So I don't know how Diotrephes got in. You know, church structure today can be different than what it was then. Some churches, even in Paul's day, Paul oftentimes would appoint when those churches would begin who the leadership was going to be. But then we've moved through series of churches in modern day where a congregation elects or chooses who the pastor is going to be. And you go through a whole series of questions and answers and what they believe and why they believe it. And they give, we give statements of faith and we do all that. And then they pray about it and they vote on him. And then they say, okay, he's in. So how Diotrephes got there, we don't know. He could have, he could have gotten there and been there before the others were there even. So it's very complex. So like legally, like you can't like go to the police and say, so this person in our church is not teaching. Wait a minute. That that that's the book of Acts, I think. No, that's not there. Um, now you you might have been able to do that during the Roman Empire. You, you, you might have been able to, as a Jew, could have gone to the Roman Empire and say, hey, we want Jesus kicked out. But so, no. So then I, we, I'm just trying to figure not out, unless like, a, what do you do if not unless a, comes in who doesn't believe the same thing and they're trying to influence you? you got to deal with it. How? <laughs> I know it's straight, straight face to face. you got to deal with it straight up. And it's, um, I've had to deal with it. I've had to deal with it here. I've had to deal with it in New Hampshire. I've had to deal with it. I've had to deal with, I've had to deal with flat out error being not here, but it was being intentionally given. And I had to ask that, that couple, I'm going to have to ask you to go somewhere else. They usually do, right? I mean, yeah, I've never had any. Uh, yes. That's what I was wondering. So don't. Yes. Oh, it's, yeah, it's horribly awkward and it's difficult. You because don't have to hit a curveball unless you've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and it is. And but most people, and a lot of times, it's this one that happened was it, it was mutual. I said, I think you need to move along, and they said, I think you're probably right. And it was quiet, and because what started to happen is everything I said, they would start to say, well, what you really meant to say was this, isn't it? And they were saying it to other people. And it became a real, it became a real problem. 
So it was something we had to do. And that's how you have to do it. Yeah, it, there's times you wish you could call the police and deal with it that way. Like how I envision biography, though, it's, it's almost like this isn't somebody who's going to go out quietly like yeah. those, those mm-hmm. people did. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. A lot of times, they, I think they try to get their own following. Yes. And that's why they talk to other people. Yes, yeah. yeah. But then once that, what they think is momentum in that, that's, is shut off. Like the leadership is like, no. And then yes. the congregation is like, no. And they're like, okay, this isn't working. And they, yeah. Yeah. So if... He sounds like he might have kind of an ego. I mean, yep. I'm reading into it. But yeah. If he doesn't Brighton. have any sort of following, he's not going to stay. That's a great point, too. You, you, yeah. you, and if the longer something stays, the longer the opportunity gets to build a following. And any church-type split that actually happens for those reasons, which is very rare that it actually happens that way. Normally, churches split over something insignificant. But that's the way it happens is it, one develops a following and people start to say, well, I like this guy better than this guy. And before you know it, you've got a whole split happening. That's what Absalom did, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Absalom's a, at the gate and wrote his, uh, ran his dad down. That's, that's a good, yeah. good point. Took the kingdom over. Yeah, yeah, father and son. So, yeah. yeah. So what's the dad do about his son? <laughs> I mean, that's... That, that to me is one, that's an unthinkable example of what in the world, what in the world would you do in a church where your children and one of your children was the divisive one? Exactly. 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 I was thinking about that and I was like, how can you be raised by somebody, right? loves you right and then you want to betray him like that i don't it just doesn't the human condition yeah the depravity of man right the soul's not prosperous. <laughs> yeah yeah it's it is not it's not an easy thing and the the church really and that's why it's so important that your local churches understand that we're operating within a we're operating within a foundation of what the Bible says. We're standing on the word and you know, there's that's our authority is that this is what God's word says and this is what can or can't be. You know, and you know, I'll just be brutally honest. You you a situation like ours where this sometimes big big churches can handle a lot like this because it's it's a small corner of a big congregation that sometimes people hardly ever know it but in small environments like ours one of these things is like a bomb going off and it has deeper repercussions that sometimes leads leadership to say well we we can't disturb the water because if we disturb the water this potentially may lead to an exodus of people out the door but truth is truth and right is right and wrong is wrong so sometimes you have to look that person and say if that's what you need to do then that's what you need to do and you pray and hope that the people that are are there are going to stay. But, you know, this, like I said, I don't know if I should say this or not, this church has had 100% turnover since I got here. No, not 100%, 99.8. Complete turnover. Totally. <laughs> so... And, and that was not, and like you said, that was not all going to people and saying, hey, you're teaching something wrong. It was people that started hearing something that they didn't like, and they proceeded to walk out because they didn't like what they were hearing. 
God does have a way of purging too, to where when the truth is being stated, people that can't stand the truth will walk away from it because they don't, I don't want to hear that. So you're opening very complex, deep things, but that's good. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you opened that up because that's led to a whole look. That's led to a whole conversation about it. I think that, you know, like hearing about David and Absalom and hearing about, you know, their John, you know, just is a good reminder. And even like what the church here has been through. I mean, all of these things are very complex. and um, But it's a good reminder, at least for me in my mind, of just the need to pray for mm-hmm. the local church, pray for this church, and pray for uh, the fellow churches that are preaching the gospel. It's very real. Yeah. And it's, you know, we, we need prayer and we need to pray for one another for that unity and that strength and yeah. the wisdom um, and discernment just to to be faithful and to be strong and, and yeah. um, for our families. Yeah. I, that the prayer is yeah. really important. Yeah. Um, because what, what, I mean, Satan does attack the church and he attacks the families and Absolutely. It's, it's really needed. No question. All right. Anything else? All right. Well, I do appreciate you being here this morning. I hope this was a help. Um, I'm trying to not make this to where it's a huge commitment to once a month. So on a regular basis, it'll be the first Saturday of the month unless that falls on a holiday or for some reason we have to change it. Um, so that kind of be easy for us to remember. Um, so if you if you want to read ahead, um, go ahead and read the rest of Third John, or you know, read it, reread it a few times, and we'll deal with the last half of it, which will primarily deal with Diotrephes and Demetrius, and um, um, kind of learn from there as well. Okay. All right. Um, Tom, would you pray to dismiss us this morning? All right, Father, I thank you for this group that's gathered here. Thank you for the opportunity to dig into your word. And Lord, I pray that uh, we can learn from this and that we can uh, continue and uh, grow closer to you through all things. And, uh, Lord, watch over us. Keep us safe and healthy as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right.